Well, before we uh, dig into that passage, I just want us to think this is the end of the series, and it's a good time to, to stop and think, to pause, and think what have we seen uh, throughout this whole section uh, in Luke. So if you think back through the different things that we've seen, uh, we saw the importance of impartial hospitality. Do you remember the Pharisees not caring about uh, people, but caring more about precepts? Not caring more about piety, but more about position? Uh, not caring about the poor, but more about politics? I just want to stop for a few seconds and just ask, ask us to think through. Have we put that into action? Have we opened our homes uh, to the needy? Have we opened our homes to each other? Uh, since we heard that. We talked the week after about counting the cost of following Jesus, loving him more than father or mother. Have we moved more in that direction uh, since then? The week after we looked at turning our judgmentalism into joy, uh, not judging people who come into the kingdom. How are we doing with that? And then last week we turned, uh, we looked at the turning back uh, of the prodigal son to God. Are we turning back and trusting in our heavenly father? So that let me just take a moment to pray for us uh, as we finish this series, thinking through all that we've already seen and pray that actually God would help us to put what we've already heard uh, into practice before we hear uh, what we're going to hear this morning. So let's pray. Father God, help us, uh, Father, not to just be hearers of the word, uh, but be doers of the word. Father, pray that you would take the teaching that we've heard over the last few weeks and apply it to our hearts and, Father, make it work out in our lives. Father, we know that uh, faith without works is dead. And so, Father, we pray that we wouldn't just believe uh, what we've heard, but, Father, we would do it too. Father, help us to trust you more. Father, help us to open our homes uh, to the needy. Father, help us not to be judgmental of those who are coming into the kingdom. Help us to uh, love Jesus more than our own families, our own uh, parents. Father, help us uh, to put him first in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn to our passage this morning. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, a story with more than one point. Uh, when you hear lots of stories as a child, there's often a point, isn't there? There's often a moral to the story. But I wonder if you ever heard with more than one. Uh, one with more than one. Perhaps you've wondered whether there are other uh, points to the stories. So think about Goldilocks and the three bears. Uh, the gist of it, a young girl wanders into a house owned by talking bears. Uh, she eats their porridge, she sits in their chairs and sleeps in their beds. And the bears come home and chase her out. That's basically the story. But what's the point? Well, perhaps the traditional uh, application of this, the traditional moral of the story is respect other people's things. You know, don't go uh, in other people's homes. But I suppose there are some other morals you could take from it, aren't there? Uh, don't leave food unattended. It tends to get eaten. Uh, don't have porridge before driving. Because it tends to make you sleepy, apparently. She has porridge. Most of the rest of us, it wakes us up in the morning. She goes to sleep with it. <laughs> Uh, if you see a bear on Airbnb, uh, it's a fake account, uh, because apparently bears don't like people sleeping in their houses. That's why it would be a fake account, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but what we have this story uh, this morning is one story, one parable, but we've got four lessons attached to it, four morals to the story, if you like. So the story is not an allegory, it's not just one thing equals something else. There's going to be several different ways uh, that we look at it. Some parables are that, aren't they? So you think parable of the sower, you know, the sower is God or Jesus, uh, the seed is the word, the soil is the hearers. But this is not one of those. And it can be seen in the different angles that are taken uh, in the way that it's explained. 
So some of them are closer to it being an allegory, where you can sort of put yourself in the story or put God in the story, but some are much, much further away. And this is going to help us with this story, because we're not going to be saying, God is like this from the story, or we're not saying that we are like this from the story. And that gets us out of lots of problems if you think uh, through what the story just was. So it's a story with, with a point. It's a parable, really, with four points. So first of all, let's look at the parable itself. That was verses uh, 1 to 8. The story revolves around a manager. Now, the key to understanding this, this story, really, is to understand what a manager is. A manager here isn't somebody above you, if you like, like we might have a manager in a job. A manager here is someone below you. Uh, Often they were a slave, though it seems as though this man is is a free person who's working voluntarily for his master, or for for money, but uh, working not as a slave. And his role is a manager. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, to understand this role, imagine that you're going away on holiday for a long time. Imagine you're going on sabbatical and you're going to have a bit of a rest. You can travel all around. And you hire somebody to look after your house while you're away. Okay, you, you, that's quite normal, isn't it? House sitter. But imagine then to that person you hand over your PIN numbers. And you say, right, while I'm away, I want you to look after all my financial uh, arrangements as well. Make sure that all the bills are paid. Uh, make sure that uh, things keep ticking over. And then you also hand over your laptop password. And you say, right, look after my business affairs while I'm away. Uh, basically, do make sure my job is being done by someone while I'm away. Uh, and while you're at it, can you look after my spouse? Uh, and my children as well, because uh, I'm just going to go away by myself. That person that you hand all those things over to, that was a manager. Okay, You would manage all of your affairs. Now imagine coming back and thinking, oh, this, this, this is really easy. I'll just get him to carry on doing that, and I'll, I'll just do what I like. That person was a manager as well. So it could be while you were away, or it could be someone you employed to basically look after everything in your life. It's a bit like the PA that you often see in, in films, your personal assistant who buys the flowers for the wife as well as looking after the, the business affairs as well. Now this person had to be incredibly trusted, if you think about it, and he had to be incredibly competent. He was looking after everything that you have. But here in this story, the manager betrayed that trust. He didn't live up to the expectations that his master had for him. He mishandled his master's affairs. Now, there's no suggestion of fraud, necessarily, but it's saying there that he wasted his wealth. He squandered it. Uh, It's the same word as is used for the prodigal son as he squanders his wealth in the previous passage. So, in other words, this man has not been a competent manager. He's not done a good job. And the master, well, he gets to hear of this. He calls in his manager and he hands him his notice. He says, right, you're going to be fired. And like a policeman has to hand in his badge and his gun, you know, in America they have to hand in their gun, don't they? Uh, But they have to hand over those things. The manager would have to hand in his books, his records of where all the money was, where everything was up to. And the manager is genuinely worried by this. And you can see why, can't you? You think, well, who's going to employ him now? He's been disgraced. He's been told that he's an incompetent manager. And in his mind, he's too weak to dig a field. He can't just start life as a farmer. He's too proud to beg. So how is he going to survive? He can't do what his natural job has been for however many years. So he hatches a plan. 
Before he hands in the book, he's going to go visit his master's debtors. How much do you owe? Well, I'll tell you what, let's just call it half. How much do you owe? Oh, well, let's just call it 75%. Okay. And the impression given is that he goes around all his master's debtors and he reduces the amount that they owe to his master. And the plan, we're told, is that they're to welcome him into their homes. That's what he's saying there, isn't he, in the passage? They're to welcome them into uh, their homes. So really, his plan is this. If I can get them to see that I'm friendly to them, maybe, you know, I'll scratch their back, they scratch mine, they'll look (coughs) up to me. Or it could be a little bit more sinister. It could be, well, I've defrauded my manager. Sorry, I've defrauded my boss, my master. And now they're in on it as well. So they have to look after me or they'll get in trouble. So it could be a little bit more sinister. Uh, But that's the plan. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make sure that he's looked after afterwards. Now we see right at the end of the story that actually the master finds out what's happening. Uh, he finds out that he's actually been uh, writing off debts all across the board. But instead of being cross, we get that surprise, don't we? Uh, it's down there in, in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So instead of getting uh, told off, if you like, actually, he takes his hat off to his cleverness. The master is impressed. He's found a very shrewd way of getting out of his predicament. He's found a a very clever way of providing for himself in the future. So that's the parable, that's the basic story. But like I say, we get four different applications, four different points, really, to this story. The first one is that we're to be shrewd operators. Be shrewd operators. You see this in the second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus there is saying that actually the world is more shrewd than Christians are, than believers are. What's the connection to the story? Well, the manager was commended for his shrewdness. Now notice, he's not commended for his dishonesty. He's called a dishonest manager. But he's not commended for his dishonesty. He's commended for his shrewdness. Remember, the master actually lost out because of what this servant did, because of what this manager did. But he was shrewd. He was clever. And Jesus says the sons of this world are more shrewd about their own business than Christians are about kingdom business. But what does he actually mean by shrewd? It's a bit of a word we don't use very often, isn't it? Well, it means clever. It means wise. It means astute. It means with it. Let me give you an example. You know the the classic children's song, The, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock? You know that one? Yeah, wise man built his house upon the rock. In Matthew's gospel there, that word wise is not the normal word for wise, which is Sophia. It's this word, shrewd. So it really should be the shrewd man built his house upon the rock. It's not so much spiritual wisdom, it's clever wisdom. Building a house on a rock is not spiritual wisdom, is it? It's applied that way, but it's something shrewd, isn't it? It's something clever. More clever than the man who built his house on the sand. It's a problem-solving wisdom. It's a sly wisdom. It's something that snakes have. So you see on the back of your notice sheet, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. It says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents 
and as innocent as doves. That word wise there is that same word, shrewd, shrewd as serpents. It's a bit like uh, Carol and I have been watching a series called The Good Wife. Have any of you seen it? Some? Okay. Uh, It's a series that's uh, based around lawyers. Uh, That's part of it's very boring. But there's a a man in it who's uh, who's trying to get elected as as some sort of position in the lawyer world. You can see I really understand this programme. Um, but he hires someone called Eli Gold uh, to, to look after his campaign. And this character is devoted to getting his boss elected. That's all that he really thinks about. And he does all sorts of things to, to do it. He can't break the rules because that would get the guy in trouble. But he does things like bring up the opposition uh, and warns them off something that he actually wants them to get onto. Uh, you know, he, he can't do anything illegal, but he finds really clever ways of helping his boss. And even though you're not really rooting for uh, that particular character, you find yourself going, wow, that was really clever. That was a brilliant way of getting around that. Oh, that's such a good way of doing it. That shrewdness. It's not breaking the rules, but it's knowing how to work the situation, knowing how to be wise in those situations. And Jesus' point is that the world is better at finding clever ways to help themselves than Christians are finding clever ways to help their master. So he's not here asking us to do wrong things, but asking us to devote our minds to his cause rather than to our own. Notice here that the manager who's being fired for being incompetent with, with his master's funds turns out to be very competent with his own funds, doesn't he? He's got the brain, he's got the cleverness, but he doesn't apply it to his master's work. He applies it to his own. So think through Christian history. There's been people who devoted their minds, their efforts, their energies to working for kingdom causes. And they've done it in shrewd ways. So think about William Wilberforce. Uh, He decided to work for justice in Parliament. He could have pursued a career in government, but he refused to join any political parties. They were just starting to form at that time. But he refused to do it because he wanted to fight against slavery. And he was blocked again and again and again. And then in 1806, Wilberforce's friend, James Stephen, proposed a bill to stop Napoleon. And the bill went to say that any French ship or any ship carrying uh, uh, slaves to French colonies could be stopped and that whatever goods were in them would be returned back from where they came from. And the pro-slave MPs didn't really see the significance of the bill. They wanted to be against Napoleon, so they let it pass. And in that one law, two-thirds of the slave trade disappeared. Just in that one law. That's shrewdness, isn't it? It's working around the problem. They proposed laws about searching ships under neutral flags and confiscating the contents. Again, people didn't see what the problem was, but it wiped out another huge chunk of the slave trade. They did nothing immoral, but they applied their cleverness to God's purposes. They were shrewd operators. Or think about a more recent example, OM, Operation Mobilisation. They wanted to get Christian literature into closed countries and were told again and again, it can't be done. They won't let us in the countries. What was George Burwa's answer, the, the director of OM? So we don't need to go into the countries, just need to go into the ports. So in 1970, he bought a ship, the Logos, and he filled it with literature and he set off. Over the years, they've now had four ships 
going into closed countries, going all across the world. They've had 47 million people on board since 1970, and they've given away over 40,000, oh, sorry, 40 million Christian books, and lots of those in countries that you just can't get into. But their answer was, just don't go in the countries, go in the port. That shrewdness for the kingdom. So we need to apply ourselves, our cleverness, to the kingdom. Where obstacles come up to the progress of the gospel, we need to be shrewd in how we get round them. We're not being unspiritual, we don't want to be underhand. We're not going to break the law, we're not going to do things that are immoral. But we need clever ways to further the kingdom. Let me give you a personal example of how this works out in, a, in an individual that might not have the possibilities of George Verwer. When I was a, a child, whenever I was doing stuff at church, I used to invite my parents along. Because, you know, parents love to see the kid up front, don't they? So, you know, if I was doing anything at church, I used to invite them along. If I got talks to give when I was a teenager, I'd try them out on my parents. You know, it's sort of like homework. You know, helping them to hear. And bit by bit, they were hearing the gospel. Bit by bit, they were hearing bits and bobs. It was shrewd, I think. I didn't do anything wrong, but it was a, a way of getting them to hear the gospel. They wouldn't come and hear a gospel talk, but there are ways of getting round it. So we need to think together, how can we be shrewd as a church as we take out the gospel? How can I be shrewd sharing the gospel at work, where we might not be able to share it openly? On my streets, where people are not so interested? And we're only going to need more and more shrewd ways to do this as more and more obstacles are put into our way in the future. We're going to need to be clever to get round the opposition that's going to be put in front of us. So we need to be shrewd operators. His second point is be generous givers. Have a look at verse at 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's the connection to the story? Well, the manager uses stuff that he can't keep, his master's stuff, to gain stuff that will do him good. Gives up stuff that he can't keep to gain stuff that will do him good. And Jesus' point here is much the same. He's asking us to use the resources that God has given us for our spiritual lives. Just as those people will welcome the manager into their home, so we can have things that will welcome us into our eternal abode. The example he uses here is friends. Because that's what the manager goes after, isn't it? Friends who will care for him. Well, we are called to uh, use our earthly resources to do a spiritual good. And that can be making friends. And being generous to those friends that we have. The prodigal son shows it negatively, doesn't he? Uh, So he has lots of money and suddenly he has lots of friends. But it is true that people gather around generous people. And the picture seems to be here of people who become friends because of our generosity. And then brothers and sisters because of the gospel. Brothers and sisters who will welcome us at the gates of heaven. But also brothers and sisters who will care for us in this life. Like the manager... It will do us good to have other people around us. People who can build us up and we can build up. People who can love us and we can love. But it's not exhausted by that. There are other examples of this principle. We can use the resources, the physical resources God has given us, for our spiritual good. We can give money away. might sound a little bit crazy to do yourself spiritual good. But Jesus himself said, didn't he, that he's more blessed to give than to receive. 
We can be generous with those who have less. That's what this section of Luke's Gospel has partly been telling us. We can invest in good Christian resources like Christian books. Ones that will do us good. It's using physical money that we can't keep. But hopefully the words will do us good in the books. You can buy filtering software for your computer if you need it. If you struggle in that way, it's using physical money to do a spiritual good. So he's saying you spend money on the spiritual. In the end, you can't keep money, but you can keep the outcome of that money if you're spending it on things that will do you good. And the manager knew this, didn't he? He used resources that he couldn't keep to gain stuff that would do him good. He was a generous giver of his master's resources, wasn't he? <laughs> he gave it away, it wasn't his own things, but it did him good. So it's to be generous givers. Thirdly, we're to be faithful managers. Have a look at verses 10 to 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, uh, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The next section here, we've got the unfaithful manager used as a negative example. This is sort of flipping it on its head. He's saying, don't be like him. His point is, don't be like the manager, especially with his early career in mind, squandering his master's wealth. And he makes three connections with the story. He talks about going from little to much, doesn't he? And if you think about it, that's what happened with the manager. He was given a little to look after, or for a little time he was given to look after something. But in the end, actually, he squandered it, and he wasn't given more employment opportunity. He wasn't given more chance to squander his master's wealth. In the end, he was sacked, wasn't he? And Jesus' point here is that God won't give us big things to do if we're not faithful in the small things. If we're not faithful in the small things that God asks us to do, why would we expect him to give us big things to do? Uh, I know someone who uh, used to wait at the bus stop at school and uh, there was always that situation. Have you ever been in that situation where you've got this really, really long queue and the bus comes up and it, it goes to the wrong end of the queue? Have you been in that situation? Now, in most sort of adult British society, you know what happens. The person at the front of the queue walks round and you know, makes his way across. But this was you know, secondary school in Morley uh, <laughs> with lots of screaming teenagers. So, of course, the person at the back straight to try and get on the bus. But there was one, one, one boy who wouldn't do that. He would stand at the back of the queue. And uh, a teacher apparently went up to him and sort of said, what are you, what are you doing? Why, are you still, why don't you just run like everybody else? And he said, you know, well, that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to, you know, at the back of the queue, I need to be at the back of the queue at the end. And the teacher said, well, it's only a small thing. And the answer was, well, if I don't do things in the small, those in the small things, why would I trust myself to do it in the big things? You see, actually, faithfulness isn't decided in the big decisions of our lives, is it? Faithfulness often is decided in the hundreds of the small decisions that we make every day. God sees the decisions that we make, and we must be faithful in the small, not just the big. So he goes from little to much, we're to be faithful in the small things. Uh, if we want to be faithful in the big things. The second example he gives is from earthly riches to true riches. The connection to the story, well, 
He doesn't look after the earthly, does he, the manager? He squanders it. If we're not faithful over earthly things, why would we expect God to give us greater spiritual responsibility? A brilliant example of this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. It's talking about the characteristics of an elder. And it's the same point really being made. So this is a characteristic of an elder. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See there? There's a looking after the earthly, going to looking after the spiritual. If you don't look after the earthly, why would God put you in charge of the spiritual? It's a bit like uh, at schools, they sometimes have that uh, class, don't they, where you get uh, those imitation babies who scream and cry and, you know, you have to change their nappy. I don't know how realistic they are now. They weren't very realistic uh, a few years ago, but I think they're probably technologies caught up a bit. But the idea there is to show you, you know, if you can't even handle this baby, then what chance do you stand with the real thing? And this really is what, what Jesus is getting at here. If we can't handle the imitation, if you like, if we can't handle the earthly, why would God give us the spiritual? And then the third uh, connection that he draws is from borrowed to owned. It's an obvious connection with the story, isn't it? He doesn't look after his master's affairs. So why would the master give him things to look after for himself? Uh, why would the master give him uh, resources to care for himself? It's a bit like a child and, and an iPad. I don't know if you've, you've let children play with iPads. Uh, but they have a tendency to, to hit it quite hard. Now, if they don't look after your iPad, what are the chances of you getting them one? When are you going to buy them a device? And that's sort of the idea here, isn't it? If they can't look after one that's borrowed, why would you give them their own? And what he's doing here is looking to the future. All of us have everything loaned, don't we? Our very breath, if you like, is on loan from God. If we're not faithful with what God has loaned us in this life, why would we expect him to give us things that are permanent in the life to come? If we can't be faithful with what God has given us to look after in our own lives, why would we expect more responsibility in glory? So we need to be good stewards of what God has given us, which is everything. Our time, our money, our family. All of these are loaned to us, and one day we'll have to give an account of how we've used them. Have we used them for our own purposes? Or have we used them for God's purposes? So we need to be those who are faithful managers, faithful with what God has given us. And then finally, we're to be God's servants alone. Be God's servants alone. This is verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What's the connection to the story? Well, the manager serves two masters, doesn't he? doesn't look like it at first, but he has two masters. His master and money. And in our story, money wins. When it comes to a choice between who is he going to look after, he looks after money. So Jesus here is asking us the question, who do I serve? Is it God or is it money? 
And one of the ways to tell that is to ask the question to ourselves, do I try to use God for money? Or do I try to use my money for God? Or to broaden it out, do I try to use God to get what I want? Or do I let God use me for what he wants? Who's in charge of my life? Is it money or God? Is it me or God? Now Jesus here isn't saying don't serve two masters. He's saying you can't serve two masters. That manager in the end couldn't look out for his master's interests and his own financial well-being. He had to choose which one was he going to look after and he chose money over his master. How often is this our predicament? Do I look out for my own interests in a situation or do I look out for God's? In the short term, they're often not the same thing, are they? We want to save ourselves embarrassment. We want to save ourselves time. We want to save ourselves money. But there'll be times this week when you'll have a choice. Am I going to serve God or am I going to serve money? Am I going to serve God or am I going to serve my own reputation? Am I going to serve God or am I going to serve my own comfort? Am I going to serve God or am I going to serve my own lust? Which am I going to choose? Who is going to be my master? And in the end, there can only be one. We cannot serve God and someone else or something else. So Jesus' plea here is to serve God alone. We're to be servants of God alone because he is the master, isn't he? That's a, it's going back to what the reality of the situation is. He is the only master in the end. You see, you could argue that Goldilocks has another moral on top of those other ones I mentioned earlier. That however strong and clever you think you are, you're not the master. Goldilocks might have thought she was fine, but there was someone bigger and stronger than her. We are not the owner of our lives, of our world. We are not the boss. We are not the master God is. So let's be shrewd operators, using our cleverness for the kingdom. Let's be generous givers. Because we can't keep it anyway. Let's be faithful managers, not defrauding God of our time, money and energy. And God's servants alone, not servants of ourselves. Let's pray that God will give us the strength to do those things.